Welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today. So today on the podcast, we have the Queen and Angelus, which was one of the most sort of interesting slash uh, kind of terrifyingly bad decisions I uh, read in 1L. It definitely made a very big impression on me. Um, Before I get into the facts, Zach, did you read this one? No, I didn't read this one. And we were kind of chatting about it um, before the podcast. And you were telling me some of the facts. And this (laughs) case is... Um, one, it's it's horrific. Yes, what happens? It's very and sad. Two, yeah. no, I I didn't read it because this fact scenario is so specific. I know it would click uh, the puzzle piece yeah. would kind of fit in on my brain, and I would remember it. And no, so this one's entirely new to me. Yeah, it's so it's very very sad. Just off the top, it was a couple. Their marriage was declining. They get into a fight. At some point, the husband, Mr. Angelis, sort of sits, the best evidence is that he sits sort of on his wife's chest to sort of stop her from hitting him, and then she dies. Uh, So it's very sad. It happens in front of their two kids who are both very small. It's very, very depressing. The only reason um, the matter gets appealed, however, to the Court of Appeal is because of what happens sort of after her death. So the case is about post-defense conduct. Mr. Angelis doesn't, he's a nurse and he, you know, doesn't try to perform CPR. He doesn't call 911. He moves his body, his wife's body into their bedroom. He takes his kids to church. He calls his lawyer. He calls his brother. He brings the kids home. He gives them presents. And, you know, then some four hours later, he calls police, Um, which is, you know, the Crown tried to bring up a lot of this post-defense conduct as sort of indicative of his intent during the fight with his wife. Uh, the Court of Appeal doesn't really buy that. Um, they seem to are they're sort of on the line that it it was a, just a horrible, horrible accident. And yeah, it's it's very sad, and it gets into a lot of interesting discussions about you know post-defense conduct and what it means. Definitely, I know. Um... When we took my uh, my evidence class with Professor Tanovich, we did talk about post-defense conduct, and it, it wasn't this case. I believe the case we had was uh, basically like a drug bust gone wrong, and mm-hmm. either someone, uh, they picked up a firearm or dropped a firearm or something happened. There was some time delay afterwards, and a person was effectively observed running away from the scene. I think it's mm-hmm. a case from out west, and, but basically kind of gets into the same type of discussion of like, what type of conduct after an offense occurs do we weigh as evidence of um, guilt or not guilt? And what probative value does it actually add to the discussion of the case? Yeah. And in this one, it's very interesting because the court essentially says, like, you know, look, what you're saying, because, you know, there's a, a issue is whether it was sort of a manslaughter incident or whether it was a murder incident. And the court sort of says, like, look, His conduct was bizarre. Nobody's saying that this wasn't bizarre. But, you know, your wife is dead and this is how you're acting after she died. And it's kind of like whether it was manslaughter and you're acting this way or whether it was murder and you're acting this way, there's no way to tell from the after conduct what your intentions were before because, you know, he's in shock. He's doing strange things. None of us hopefully touch wood 
would ever be in a situation where we would ever have to deal with this. So it's like you don't really know how you would act. So they're just like it's not probative one way or another, right? Like he might have done all these things had she died by accident just as likely as he might have done all these things if he had gotten the intention during the fight to try to kill her and he had murdered her, right? Like it's not it's not uh, good evidence one way or the other in post-offense conduct to show what he was thinking. There's just no way to tell. We don't, you know, the court's essentially like, who knows? He might have acted this way no matter what, and you can't sort of have him be found with this intention that might have applied regardless of his intention. Yeah, and that's what I think is really interesting in the discussion of, um, uh, like, post-event conduct or, like, post-crime conduct. Like, it's kind of weird because every human being is going to react differently to different Mm -hmm. uh, trauma and stimuli. So again, what probative value does it add to the discussion? And fortunately the courts weighed in on it and we kind of have an answer whether we like it or not. Yeah. And yeah, post-defense conduct is one of those things that can be very messy because like, as you say, who knows, right? Like who knows what you would do if you were faced with something like this, especially something like so overwhelming and traumatic and, you know, Who knows? And so I think the courts have generally treated this evidence with at least some caution and skepticism and really looking into it a bit more. So, yeah, this is definitely a good one. It's by no means sort of the case on post-defense conduct, but it's definitely a very interesting one. It's a quick listen, and we hope you guys enjoy. The Queen and Angelis, Court of Appeal for Ontario. On appeal from the conviction entered on October 30th, 2010 by Justice Robert J. Smith of the Superior Court of Justice sitting with the jury. Heard December 11th, 2012. Decision by Appeal Justice Laskin. Part A, Introduction. The appellant, Demetrio Sangelis, was charged with the second-degree murder of his wife, Lien. He accepts that he caused her death during a physical altercation. The two principal issues at trial were whether he acted in self-defense and whether he had the intent to commit murder. After a 12-day trial before Justice Smith and a jury, during which the appellant testified in his own defense, he was found guilty of second-degree murder. He was sentenced to life imprisonment without eligibility for parole for 12 years. He appeals his conviction. There are two principal issues on the appeal. First, whether the trial judge erred by refusing to leave the defense of provocation with the jury, and second, whether the trial judge erred in his instructions to the jury on the appellant's post-offense conduct. On the first issue, the trial judge ruled that, as the appellant had testified he was not angry when he killed his wife, the subjective element of the test for provocation was not met and the defense had no air of reality. The appellant submits that the trial judge's ruling was wrong because there was other evidence, both direct and circumstantial, from which a properly instructed jury, acting reasonably, could find that provocation was made out. The appellant and the Crown agree that if this ground of appeal is successful, we ought to substitute a verdict of manslaughter. On the second issue, the trial judge instructed the jury that they could take into account the appellant's post-offense conduct in determining whether the appellant intended to kill his wife. The appellant submits that this instruction was wrong because the appellant's post-offense conduct was equally consistent with a finding of manslaughter as it was with a finding of murder. He argues that the trial judge should therefore have instructed the jury that the evidence of post-offense conduct had no probative value on whether he had the intent for murder. The appellant further submits that the trial judge should have specifically cautioned the jury about relying on his strange behavior after his wife died as a basis to infer guilt. If the second ground of appeal succeeds, 
The appellant asks for a new trial because the trial judge's charge on post-defense conduct may have affected the jury's assessment of both his intent and the defense of self-defense. I would give effect to both grounds of appeal. The defense of provocation had an air of reality, and the appellant's post-defense conduct was not probative of whether he had the requisite intent for murder. The appellant is entitled to a new trial on his second ground of appeal, and I would so order. Part B, Background Facts. As I would order a new trial, I will provide only a brief summary of the pertinent facts. On Sunday morning, June 8, 2008, Leanne Angelis died during a struggle with the appellant. The struggle took place in front of their two young children in the living room of their small apartment. The deterioration in the party's marriage in the months before Leanne died and the appellant's conduct after her death are relevant to the two main grounds of appeal. 1. The party's marriage and its breakdown. The appellant and Leanne met at university in 1990 and were married in 1992. They both became federal civil servants and lived in Ottawa. Neither had a criminal record or any history of violence and there had been no history of abuse in their relationship. However, in April 2008, the marriage began to break down. A precipitating incident was the appellant's discovery that his wife had been having a covert affair with another man for 13 years. Over the next two months, the relationship became highly acrimonious. Leanne was not interested in reconciling, she wanted a divorce. Both parties consulted family law lawyers and prepared for a bitter custody battle. In late May, the appellant served Leanne with court papers seeking temporary sole custody of the children. A hearing date was set for July. Although tensions escalated after April, neither party was willing to move out of the apartment or leave the children. By May, Leanne had stopped speaking to the appellant directly and would communicate with him only through their eight-year-old daughter, Nikki. Leanne's state of mind in the months before she died. There was some evidence led at trial that in the months before she died, Leanne tried to uncover incriminating evidence about the appellant and tried to provoke him to act badly. Push my buttons, as he said in a letter to his family law lawyer. For example, at the end of May, Leanne started videotaping the appellant as he went about his daily activities in the apartment. Apparently, Leanne was trying to capture incidents where the appellant mistreated the children in order to advance her claim for custody. On June 7th, the day before she died, Leanne invited her boyfriend over to steal the hard drive in the appellant's computer, again hoping to find some discreditable conduct that would help her in the custody fight. And throughout this period, Leanne was preoccupied with money. The appellant says that during the marriage, he used virtually all of his income to pay the family's household expenses. Leanne's earnings went into investments in her name and RESPs for the children. She accumulated over $100,000. She told co-workers that she was divorcing the appellant because he spent too much and that she was not going to let him get her money in the divorce. Understandably, the appellant described the atmosphere in the apartment as unbearable. The fatal struggle on June 8th. The appellant was planning to take his children to church that morning. Indeed, that day Nikki was to graduate from Sunday school. The evidence is conflicting on what precipitated the physical fight between Leanne and the appellant that ended in Leanne's death. According to Nikki, her parents were fighting about money. According to the appellant, Leanne and Nikki had been arguing. The appellant tried to intervene, clad only in his boxer shorts, as he was getting dressed for church. The struggle that ensued was brief, but violent. The appellant said that Leanne suddenly attacked him. She scratched him on the face, lips, chest, and torso, and she clawed at his penis, drawing blood and causing pain in his groin. The appellant, in turn, tackled Leanne, straddled her, and tried to restrain her arms. 
Leanne told Nikki to call the police, but Nikki was too afraid to do so. Nikki said that at one point, the appellant covered her mother's mouth with his hand. The appellant said that if he covered Leanne's mouth, it was only in passing. Leanne ended up on the floor either on her stomach, the appellant's account, or on her back, Nikki's account. The appellant was on top of her, straddling her again and pinning her arms down. Then Leanne suddenly stopped breathing. It was apparent to the appellant that his wife was dead. Leanne weighed 95 pounds and was 4 feet 9 inches tall. The appellant weighed 150 pounds and was 5 feet 6 inches tall. The pathologist could not determine the specific mechanism of death, but thought asphyxiation, deprivation of oxygen, was a possibility. Asphyxiation can result from smothering, obstruction of the airways, strangulation, or burking, sitting on the chest or upper back and interfering with respiration, or a combination of these three mechanisms. Regardless of the mechanism, the pathologist testified that once the air supply is blocked, unconsciousness comes very rapidly, likely in less than a minute, and death occurs quickly afterwards. The appellant testified that he was not angry during this struggle. He did not intend to hurt Leanne or cause her death. His intent was to stop her from hurting him. The Crown urged the jury to find that the appellant had intentionally killed Leanne in a fit of sudden rage. The Appellant's Post-Offense Conduct The appellant's post-offense conduct, relied on by the Crown and the subject of the trial judge's charge, can be viewed in two categories. In the first category is the appellant's inaction immediately after becoming aware that his wife had died. Although the appellant is a trained nurse, he did not administer CPR to try to revive Leanne nor did he call 911. He testified that he was in shock. In the second category is the appellant's behavior in the three or four hours after Leanne died. He folded the living room carpet over her and dragged her body into the master bedroom. He said he did so to prevent his son, Theo, from touching his mother. The appellant then put his wife's makeup on to hide his injuries. He laid out six pairs of his underwear in the bathroom. He claimed that he did so because the blood from his penis kept soaking through each pair. The appellant then collected the children and took them to church. He said that he wanted to find some sense of maybe normalcy in an abnormal situation. Nikki received her certificate for graduating from Sunday school. The appellant took communion with Theo in his arms. While at church, the appellant telephoned his brother in Montreal to arrange for him to get the children. His brother wanted a contact person in Ottawa, so the appellant phoned his family law lawyer, but could not reach her. About an hour and 20 minutes after leaving his apartment, the appellant returned. Once home, he retrieved some Christmas presents he had previously bought for the children and gave them to Nikki and Theo. He said he did so because he thought he might be separated from them for some time. Around 2.10 p.m., about an hour and a half after returning home and between three and four hours after Leanne died, the appellant called 911. When he reported his wife's death to the operator, his tone of voice was calm and casual. During their deliberations, the jury twice asked for the recording of this call to be played for them aloud in court. Part C, Discussion. Subpart one, the trial judge erred by refusing to leave the defense of provocation with the jury. Under section 232.1 of the criminal code, Murder may be reduced to manslaughter if the person who committed the murder did so in the heat of passion caused by sudden provocation. Section 232.2 defines provocation as a wrongful act or insult, sufficient to deprive an ordinary person of the power of self-control, if the accused acted on it on the sudden and before there was time for his passion to cool. 
From the statutory definition, it is evident that provocation has both an objective and subjective element. The Supreme Court considered these elements in the Queen and Tran, citing with approval the following passage from Justice Corey's majority judgment in the Queen and Tebert. Quote, First, there must be a wrongful act or insult of such a nature that it is sufficient to deprive an ordinary person of the power of self-control as the objective element. Second, the subjective element requires that the accused act upon that insult on the sudden and before there was a time for his passion to cool, end quote. In this case, the trial judge ruled that the objective element of provocation had an air of reality. Leanne's clawing of the appellant's penis was a wrongful act sufficient to deprive an ordinary person of the power of self-control. On appeal, the Crown does not challenge this aspect of the trial judge's ruling. However, the trial Crown argued, and the trial judge agreed, that the subjective element of the provocation defense had no air of reality because the appellant testified that he was not angry after Leanne attacked him. This ruling is wrong in law. The air of reality test requires a trial judge to leave a defense with a jury where there is evidence upon which a reasonable jury acting judicially could find that it succeeds. In making this determination, a trial judge must examine the totality of the evidence. Although the accused's testimony is an important consideration in assessing the viability of a provocation defense, the trial judge should always consider any other evidence capable of supporting an inference of sudden rage or loss of control. Even where an accused denies being angry at the time of the offense, if there is other evidence on which a jury could find provocation was made out, the trial judge must leave the defense with the jury. For example, in this case, the jury may have rejected the appellant's testimony that he was not angry and accepted other evidence about the altercation suggesting that he had, in fact, lost control when Leanne attacked him. The trial judge was thus not justified in withdrawing the defense from the jury solely on the basis of the appellant's disavowal of anger. Instead, he was required to consider whether there was any evidence before the jury, from the appellant's mouth or otherwise, establishing the subjective element of the defense. I think that there was, for two reasons. The position taken by the Crown, and the other pieces of evidence, direct and circumstantial, that gave an air of reality to the defense. The Crown's position at trial. The Crown's position at trial was that the appellant intended to kill his wife because he was angry. I accept, as Ms. Crosby contends, that anger alone does not make out the defense of provocation. Anger may fuel cold-blooded revenge, which is the antithesis of loss of control. But anger may also fuel sudden rage, a loss of control, inflamed passions, a killing in the heat of the moment before regaining control of oneself. However phrased, when an accused acts in this latter fashion, the provocation defense has an air of reality. The Crown repeatedly suggested to the appellant in cross-examination that he was extremely angry and that in the midst of the struggle, he wanted his wife dead. In her closing address to the jury, the Crown again forcefully argued that the appellant meant to kill Leanne because he was enraged. For example, she made the following comments to the jury. Quote, I submit to you that Mr. Angelis killed his wife and he meant to. That was his intent. He was enraged. We're getting to this issue here of rage. I would submit to you that Mr. Angelis's state of mind in the weeks and days leading up to the murder was that building up to anger and ultimately to rage. You can find him guilty of murder even if you find that the intention to kill her happened during the assault. This is not a situation where you need to find that he formulated some intent to kill her at any time prior to this happening. Intent can be formed very quickly, before or even during the offense." End quote. And the Crown ridiculed the appellant's claim that he was not angry. 
She said, he never feels anger, he only feels shock. It's unexpected. He never feels anger. That makes no sense. Who wouldn't feel anger? The Crown's argument that the appellant became enraged immediately before or during the struggle suggests that there was some evidentiary basis for finding that he was provoked. A Crown cannot argue to the jury a speculative position not founded on the evidence. This would be improper. By making these comments, the Crown thus implicitly acknowledged that there was evidence to show the subjective element of provocation could be made out. Moreover, it seems to me that the Crown cannot have it both ways. It cannot go to the jury and argue that the appellant killed his wife because he became suddenly enraged, and yet object to the defense of provocation being left with the jury. That is simply unfair. Evidence showing that the subjective element of provocation had an air of reality. Apart from the Crown's position, there was evidence, both direct and circumstantial, from which a jury could conclude that the subjective element of provocation was made out. In other words, there was evidence that suggested the appellant lost control of his senses and before regaining control, killed his wife in a sudden rage. The evidence included the following. The testimony of David Kenny. Mr. Kenny was a neighbor who lived down the hall from the appellant's apartment, over 60 feet away. He testified that on the morning of Leanne's death, he heard shouting from another apartment and a male voice yelled what sounded like the word bitch. As the Crown argued to the jury, is there a word that is more evocative of how a man could feel about a woman than the word bitch? Kenny told the police that it was only about a minute between the time the shouting started and ended. Kenny's testimony is therefore credible evidence that the appellant acted out of sudden rage. The witnesses to Leanne's death. The appellant killed his wife in front of their two children. Yet the appellant undeniably loved his children and was their primary caregiver. For him to have done what he did in front of his children suggests that he was not in control when he killed Leanne. The context of the relationship and the nature of Leanne's acts. By June, the relationship between the appellant and Leanne had become highly acrimonious and overlaid with strong emotions on both sides. To repeat the appellant's description, the atmosphere had become unbearable. Yet the appellant and his wife and their children continued to live together in their apartment. In that context, Leanne attacked the most intimate part of the appellant's body. It would not be hard to infer that this context, the clawing of the appellant's penis, caused him to lose control and suddenly turn on his wife. The appellant's nature. It is hard to understand why a mild-mannered civil servant with no history of violence or abuse in his relationship with his wife would turn on her in an instant and then panic after, unless he acted out of sudden rage. The suddenness of the attack and the brevity of the encounter. The appellant was unprepared for what occurred. He was getting ready to go to church. Both his evidence and Kenny's evidence suggest that what occurred happened fast. Indeed, it was for this reason that the Crown suggested to the jury the appellant's intent to kill could have formed suddenly during the course of the struggle. Equally plausible, the appellant could have suddenly become so enraged that he killed his wife before his anger subsided. Thus, there was an air of reality to the defense of provocation. The trial judge erred by refusing to leave this defense with the jury. Accordingly, the appellant's conviction for second-degree murder cannot stand. The appellant and the Crown agree that this error, standing alone, leads to a substituted verdict of manslaughter. However, the trial judge also erred in his charge to the jury on the appellant's post-offense conduct. Subpart 2. The trial judge erred to the jury on the appellant's post-offense conduct. A. The charge and the party's position on appeal. Because the jury could not consider provocation, the appellant's intent became the central issue in the case. If the jury was satisfied that the appellant had intent to kill, 
then his defense of self-defense could not succeed. A conviction for murder was inevitable. The trial judge repeatedly instructed the jurors, no less than eight times, that they could use the appellant's post-defense conduct to decide whether the appellant intended to kill his wife. The critical portion of his charge is as follows. Quote, evidence of what a person said, did, or did not do after an offense was committed may help you decide whether the accused intended to kill his wife, Leanne. It may help, or it may not. What a person said, did, or did not do after an offense was committed may indicate that he acted in a way which, according to human experience and logic, is consistent with the conduct of a person who intended to commit the offense and inconsistent with the conduct of someone who did not intend to do so. On the other hand, there may be another explanation for what Demetrios Angelis said, did, or did not do afterwards, which was something unconnected with his intention to commit the offense charged. You have heard evidence that after the offense charge was committed, the accused did not attempt to resuscitate Leanne or immediately call 911, but rather rolled Leanne's body into the carpet and dragged her body into the bedroom. The accused admitted that he was trained as a nurse and that he admitted that he knew how to administer CPR, but he did not do so. Nikki testified that the accused told her and Theo that mommy was dead and that it was okay to be sad and to cry, that he could go to jail for a long time, and that he would give them presents to make them happy. The accused then got dressed, dressed the children, took the children to Sunday school. He only called 911 at approximately 2.10 p.m. after attending church on Sunday afternoon, after making three calls to his brother, one from a payphone, and two calls to his family law lawyer, and after he had been in the apartment for an hour and 30 minutes. You heard a tape recording of the accused when he spoke for some time with the 911 dispatcher, which you can consider as evidence of the accused mental state at that time. The evidence of what the accused said, did, or did not do after Leanne died is not disputed. You must next consider whether this was because Demetrios Angelis was conscious of intentionally killing his wife, or for some other reason. You must be careful not to immediately conclude that what he said, did, or did not do was because he was conscious of intentionally killing his wife. You must not use this evidence about what Demetrios Angelis said, did, or did not do afterwards in deciding or helping you decide that Demetrios Angelis intended to kill Leanne unless you reject any other innocent explanation for it. If you find that what Demetrios Angelis said, did, or did not do afterwards was because he was conscious of having intentionally killed Leanne, you may consider this evidence, together with all of the other evidence, in reaching your verdict. On the other hand, if you do not find that Demetrios Angelis said, did, or did not do these things because he was conscious of intentionally killing Leanne, then you must not use this evidence in helping you decide that Demetrios Angelis committed the offense charged. The appellant's submission that the trial judge erred in giving these instructions rests primarily on two grounds. First, the appellant submits that the instructions invited the jury to infer a specific intent to kill on an unsound, impermissible basis, his post-offense conduct. He argues that his behavior after his wife died was equally consistent with murder and manslaughter and therefore could not be probative of his intent at the time of the offense. The appellant accepts that the jury was entitled to use his post-offense conduct to determine whether he had committed a culpable act, potentially undermining his claim of self-defense. However, he submits that they were not entitled to use it to infer his degree of culpability. Second, he submits that the trial judge should have cautioned the jury about relying on the post-offense conduct evidence at all. He contends that his strange demeanor in the wake of Leanne's death is the type of evidence that has highly suspect probative value and is easily misinterpreted. 
The judge was therefore obliged to specifically instruct the jury not to draw any inference from it, or at the very least, to exercise caution before relying on it. The appellant acknowledges that defense counsel failed to object to these instructions at trial. However, he contends that because the errors went to the central issue at trial, the conviction cannot stand. The Crown submits that the post-defense conduct principally relied on by the trial Crown was the appellant's failure to perform CPR on Leanne or immediately call 911, what I have described as the first category of the appellant's post-defense conduct. She argues that this is the type of post-defense conduct from which a jury can properly infer an intent to kill. The Crown further submits that the trial judge did caution the jury that there may be another explanation for what the appellant said, did, or did not do afterwards, which was something unconnected with his intention to commit the offense charge. This general caution was adequate to prevent the jurors from placing undue weight on the evidence of the appellant's behavior after his wife died. Alternatively, the Crown submits that even if the trial judge erred in his instructions, no miscarriage occurred and we should apply the curative proviso under Section 686.1b of the Criminal Code. I agree with the appellant that the trial judge erred by telling the jury they could infer from the appellant's post-offense conduct that he had the intent to kill his wife. I also agree with the appellant that the error was neither harmless nor the result of a tactical decision by defense counsel. Therefore, I would not apply the proviso, despite the absence of an objection at trial. The use of post-defense conduct to determine culpability, general principles. An accused's post-defense conduct is generally admissible to show that the accused acted in a manner which, based on human experience and logic, is consistent with the conduct of a guilty person and inconsistent with the conduct of an innocent person. However, evidence of post-defense conduct may be susceptible to jury misuse, especially when, as in this case, the accused has admitted to committing the actus reus of an offense, and the Crown is relying on the post-defense conduct to demonstrate a specific level of intent. Although this evidence will often be prejudicial to the accused, it will rarely have any significant probative value going to the accused's state of mind during the commission of the criminal act. That people will generally behave one way after they kill someone purposefully and another way after they kill someone accidentally is often a dubious assumption. Therefore, in a long line of cases, both the Supreme Court of Canada and various courts of appeal, including this court, have held that the accused's post-offense conduct may be probative of an accused's culpability, but not of the level of that culpability. These courts have so held because the accused's post-offense conduct is as consistent with an inference that the accused committed manslaughter as it is with an inference that the accused had the intent for murder. Where self-defense is raised as a defense, an accused's post-offense conduct is circumstantial evidence from which a jury can infer that the accused committed a culpable act and thus did not act in self-defense. But ordinarily, trial judges have been obliged to instruct juries that post-defense conduct evidence cannot be used to infer that the accused committed murder rather than manslaughter. Recently, in The Queen and White, the Supreme Court considered the use of post-offense conduct to support an inference of intent. Justice Rothstein, writing for the majority, clarified in paragraph 31 of his reasons that post-offense conduct should be treated like any other type of circumstantial evidence. Quote, given that the evidence of post-defense conduct is not fundamentally different from other kinds of circumstantial evidence, the admissibility of evidence of post-defense conduct and the formulation of limiting instructions should be governed by the same principles of evidence that govern other circumstantial evidence. 
In particular, to be admissible, such evidence must be relevant to a live issue, and it must not be subject to a specific exclusionary rule. It may also be excluded pursuant to the exercise of a recognized judicial discretion, such as the discretion to exclude evidence whose prejudicial effect outweighs its probative value. These same principles also determine the need for and scope of a limiting instruction. Post-defense conduct, therefore, is not subject to blanket rules. It is circumstantial evidence whose probative value depends on the nature of the evidence, the issues at trial, and the positions of the parties. Thus, we do not automatically label certain kinds of post-defense conduct as always or never relevant to a particular issue. Rather, we must consider all the circumstances of a case to determine whether the post-defense conduct is probative, and if so, what use the jury may properly make of it. In the words of Justice Rothstein at paragraph 36 of The Queen in White, the overriding question is this, what do logic and human experience suggest that a jury can legitimately or rationally infer from the accused's post-offense conduct? The principles applied to this case. In this case, the trial judge should not have invited the jury to use the appellant's post-offense conduct to infer the level of his culpability, to infer that he was guilty of murder, not manslaughter. As a matter of logic and human experience, the appellant's post-offense conduct could not support a rational inference of an intent to kill. That could not do so is evident from the circumstances. The appellant and his wife had no history of violence or abuse in their relationship, yet they just had a sudden and very physical altercation. The altercation occurred in front of their two children. It was brief. It left the appellant disoriented and bleeding profusely from his genitals. And when it was over, he knew only two things. Leanne was dead, and he had killed her. In these circumstances, logic and human experience suggest that the appellant's post-offense conduct was as consistent with a panicked reaction to Leanne's sudden and unintended death as it was with a panicked reaction to her sudden and intended death. Thus, the jury should not have been repeatedly instructed that they could use this evidence to determine whether the appellant had the intent for murder. Even if one were to focus on what was likely the most cogent of the appellant's post-defense conduct, the first category, namely his failure to administer CPR to Leanne or to immediately call 911, I am not persuaded that his conduct could rationally support an inference of intent to kill, rather than simply an inference of having done something wrong. Indeed, recent case law from this court suggests that an accused's failure to render assistance after learning the victim may be dead is not probative of an accused's level of culpability. Moreover, although the Crown did focus on the first category of the appellant's post-defense conduct, the trial judge instructions did not. They referred to all of the appellant's conduct after Leanne died, including the appellant's strange demeanor in the hours following the fight. Even the Crown fairly acknowledges that the evidence falling in that second category could not, on any common sense view, be probative of whether the appellant killed his wife. For these reasons, the trial judge erred when he expressly instructed the jury that they could take the appellant's post-offense conduct into account in determining whether he intended to kill his wife. Instead, he should have instructed the jury that the appellant's post-offense conduct was relevant only to the question whether the appellant had committed a culpable act or had acted in self-defense. And because the appellant's post-offense conduct was not relevant to the issue of his intent, the trial judge should have further instructed the jury this evidence had no probative value on the question of whether the appellant was guilty of murder or manslaughter. I do not think it can be said that the trial judge's erroneous instructions on the appellant's post-defense conduct caused no substantial wrong. 
the erroneous instructions were potentially highly prejudicial to the appellant as they went to the central issue of the case, his intent. Therefore, even though defense counsel had the trial judge's charge in advance and did not object to the instructions on post-defense conduct, I would not apply the proviso. Because the post-defense conduct instructions potentially affected the appellant's claim of self-defense, this error warrants a new trial. The absence of caution. Post-defense conduct evidence may not be relevant to one issue, but probative of another. For example, the appellant acknowledges before this court that a jury can legitimately infer from post-defense conduct that an accused is aware of having committed a culpable act. In this case, that inference might be capable of undermining the appellant's defense of self-defense. However, the appellant argues that, because of the nature of the post-defense conduct in question, the trial judge should have specifically cautioned the jury against relying on this evidence at all. He contends that the conduct falling within the second category, his odd behavior after his immediate inaction when Lien died, qualifies as demeanor evidence. And he submits because demeanor evidence is especially susceptible to juror misuse, the generalized caution given by the trial judge in the case was not sufficient. The appellant's demeanor after his wife died was undeniably bizarre. Wrapping his wife in a carpet, putting on his wife's makeup, taking his children to church, bringing his children back to the apartment and giving them presents bought for Christmas in the middle of June, and finally making a 911 call in a completely calm, almost detached voice. This evidence could have played a powerful role in the jury's deliberations. Jurors tend to focus on this sort of evidence. They find it cogent and significant. It is seemingly hard to explain away. Defense counsel acknowledged as much when he characterized the appellant's post-defense conduct as the elephant in the room. As I would order a new trial on error in the trial judge's express post-defense conduct instructions, I need not decide whether the trial judge erred by failing to specifically caution the jury about relying on the appellant's demeanor after Leanne died. It will be up to the trial judge in the new trial to determine whether a caution is called for. Other grounds of appeal. The appellant argued several other grounds of appeal. It is unnecessary to consider these other grounds in view of my disposition of the two main grounds of appeal. Part D. Conclusion. The trial judge erred by refusing to leave the defense of provocation with the jury. The trial judge also erred in his instructions to the jury on the appellant's post-offense conduct. I would therefore allow the appeal, set aside the appellant's conviction, and order a new trial. Thanks for the listen, friend. I hope you're able to enjoy that case and learn something new from it. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. It is hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Rademile. Audio engineering by Anthony Rademile. Graphic design by Julie Lundy. Check her out online at julielundyart.com. And music done by Matt Rademile at radandkel.com. At Legal Listening, we're always open to new ideas, suggestions, and of course, guest readers. Check us out on Twitter at Legal Listening or online at LegalListening.com. Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We'll catch you in the next case. Bye now.